My name is Fiona Zeiger and you're listening to The Migration Podcast. Our guest today is Victoria Sereda, a Ukrainian scholar whose research expertise struggles the formation of socio-political identity, cross-regional mobility, as well as internal and international displacement of Ukrainians following the Russian annexation of Crimea in 2014. With Asia Pizarevskaya, she speaks about researching forced displacement as her home country has come under attack. So Victoria, it's really a pleasure talking to you. Um, for me, as a researcher of Russian origin, it's um, uh, very important to uh, have this conversation and being able to unveil uh, the perspectives of um, Ukrainian scientists on uh, mobility and displacement uh, in light of uh, uh, of course, the uh, war that started in February, but also um, to reflect a bit on the previous periods of displacement that were taking place. And uh, I think in uh, say with the Western academia, it has been largely overlooked. So uh, let's start uh, maybe with the first question is, uh, how did you come to study this uh, topic? Thank you for giving me this floor, because I think it is important to use different places and spaces to, to talk about the issues. I studied the region since early 90s. I was a, among the team of scholars who did uh, several consecutive uh, studies, both of comparative studies of different regions of Ukraine, including Donbass. And when everything was happening... I immediately saw that uh, following the media and following some very simplified political schemes, the, the way how the conflict was positioned and described was not as I saw the situation on the ground being a scholar of, of the region for, for years and years. And I think this is very important because after labeling and explaining, we are trying to define what can we do and depending on how we see the conflict, we also, peacekeeping community politicians and, and also uh, the general public following the media would support certain steps or would support certain policies. So in this case, this was one of the reasons uh, I saw how different the situation is uh, from my scholarly perspective. The uh, which years are we now talking about? Um... So this is after the Euromaidan, after the beginning of, after annexation of Crimea and beginning of, of conflict over Donbass. The second reason was that uh, my colleagues from, from the region, from Donbass, had to uh, escape, uh, had to, were displaced uh, and settled in my home city. So all my family and my friends and many of my colleagues were very extensively involved in supporting uh, Ukrainian displaced because at that moment step, state was not really responding to their needs and it took, took quite a long time for Ukrainian state to realize the scale of the, the problem and uh, the needs of the people and civil society was exactly helping or taking over at that moment. And being sociologist, we could not... Uh, sit and, and not to reflect on what was happening. And for me, this was, uh, and for us, it was, we saw that something absolutely new phenomenon is happening. And actually the countries uh, around us were not uh, really aware of 
because at this moment the, another refugee crisis was unfolding in Europe and uh, uh, European scholars were talk, talking a lot about the displacement, about refugees, about mi migrant or refugee crisis, but they were overlooking similar or very strong crises happening uh, at this time in Ukraine. And uh, as we saw, absolute majority of people who were displaced were displaced within the country. So because Ukraine didn't have visa-free regime with EU, this displacement was uh, within the country and remained invisible for uh, European migration or displaced migration scholarship. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so let's uh, talk a, a bit more about the mobility patterns that you observed uh, in the period um, from 2014 in Ukraine and also outside Ukraine. Uh, could you please map the picture a bit? So if you're talking about mobility patterns, we, we could observe that uh, those who, who were internally displaced, they mostly settled close to the regions where they originated from. For many reasons, uh, one of them would be lack of resources, uh, both from the side of the state, helping them, lack of housing, lack of specific uh, resettlement programs, and so on. So people had to resettle on their own. Uh, however, they lost almost everything. Uh, at the same time, in many cases, because of the lack of resources, they were leaving someone behind. Typically, this would be older, elderly uh, who either didn't want to relocate or they didn't have enough resources to, to, to come all together. So they would settle close to the contact line to be able to visit them, to help them. And in, in some cases, people would also commute uh, because they, they didn't have re enough resources to rent apartments uh, in uh, government-controlled territories, so they would return home, stay there in some cases, and commute for the job uh, on uh, non-occupied territories of Ukraine. Uh, if we are talking about patterns outside of Ukraine, uh, very few people uh, were able to go to EU because till uh, 2017 there was no, as I said, visa-free regime. So to go outside, you, you, you need to have a visa and you, you need to have a specific reason why would you be allowed to, to cross the border. But uh, if you would apply for, uh, if you manage to cross the border, and then if you will try to apply for uh, asylum or refugee status, then in majority of cases, you would be rejected on the grounds that absolute majority of main territory of Ukraine is not under occupation, that uh, this is a safe ground and people can, uh, can, be, can return home. Uh, so people didn't try to apply and those very small numbers in comparison to what was happening is happening today. Uh, within two years of hot phase of the conflict, close to 2,000 people applied for refugee status. And depending on the country, between 2 and 4% of them were granted this status. So uh, in other cases, people had to look for documented or undocumented labor migration choices within the Europe. We would also have to talk about the movement in the South, because Ukraine is a... The, home country for a big number of, uh, of eth uh, Muslim ethnic groups such as Crimean Tatars or Turk Meshkitins who were trying to flee to, towards the Turkey 
some of them were also many Crimean Tatars were also moving towards towards mainland Ukraine as well. But those who were going to Turkey, they were also treated differentially because Turk Meshketins are ethnically Turks, and then they can be treated uh, with the privileged status of people resettling to Turkey of Turkish origin, and they uh, they had m- much more privileges. Uh, in comparison, for example, to Crimean Tatars, who neither were quite often granted refugee status, nor could apply to this ethnically profiling uh, minority status of of migrants. Then the biggest outflow uh, we could notice towards the Russia, uh, happening specifically during the uh, hot phases of, of the Donbass conflict over Donbass. And then uh, we could talk about roughly uh, one million of people who moved to Russia, and many of them were staying in refugee camps there. And Russia was using a lot of media rhetoric, saying that we are, uh, look, here is a humanitarian catastrophe. Uh, we have to do something about this conflict. Uh, uh, we we are saving our ethnic brothers uh, and using these refugees for as a as a weapon for political pressure on Ukraine or on other countries negotiating uh, the situation around Ukraine and also uh, for for political benefits within the country. But as soon as peace ceasefire was negotiated. This was not uh, this was not needed any longer, and uh, in 2013, Russian government uh, 16, Russian government decided that now we have to stop this refugee camp programs, and they quite r- rapidly stopped them, leaving people quite often without any other solutions but to return to 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 the occupied territories because there were huge queues and very little possibilities. For, for legalization of their status, uh, or temporary legalization of their status uh, uh, on the territory of, of Russian Federation. There were some ways how they could do this. Uh, they could apply for IDP status, but IDP status in Russia is granted only to Russian et- people with Russian ethnic origin. Another possibility was compatriot program, which was uh, implemented since early 2000s. Uh, and again, within this comp- uh, compatriot resettlement program, people, uh, there were two very important positions. People were ethnically profiled. So uh, the, there was very vague definition that you should be brought up in Russian culture. And also there was a definition about uh, skills. So uh, people were chosen on the basis of uh, ethnic belonging, but also on on the basis of certain human capital skills, which would be important uh, for uh, depopulated regions of Russian Federation. And within this program, people could not choose where they would go. So they would receive a, a place to stay, they would receive a job, but, but uh, they could not choose the place where they, they would go. And this also created uh, many tensions for those who would choose this program. Uh, quite often they, were, they would be sent to remote regions of Russian Federation, 
uh, where indigenous population felt exploited by uh, Russians who would come extract resources and l invest very little uh, into the local infrastructure. Uh, and those who would choose this program would be also associated with those Russians who are coming and exploiting indigenous population. Okay, yeah, that's fascinating. And um, yeah, I think it's not talked uh, enough uh, about these trends uh, in in our, let's say, scientific uh, bubble here in Western Europe. So um, you mentioned that you have been writing a manuscript and you have submitted it uh, several months ago. So what was the manuscript about? So uh, I was finishing a book about uh, displacement, war displacement and memory. Uh, for me, uh, the important element which is also missing in, in many talks about the adaptation or integration of refugees is this uh, social cultural elements, because uh, we talk a lot about job market, about the access to education. We talk a, a lot about some political rights, like uh, possibility to wo vote in local ele elections and so on. But much less is discussed uh, about how certain cultural markers could help people to feel included or excluded. So how they influence their sense of belonging uh, to receiving community. Uh, but also uh, that this is an important issue for receiving communities because this is not a one-way pro uh, process. It's always that receiving communities are also uh, re-articulating the sense of belonging based on those new arriving groups uh, to their spaces. Mm -hmm. And um, based on which material uh, did you write this uh, book? These this were in-depth interviews with people who relocated uh, first within different regions of Ukraine. Uh, and we, uh, I and my colleagues, uh, we collected it for a very long time and with very different groups. Uh, because again, for me, it's very important when I'm giving voice to these people, they were overseen by Western uh, scholarship quite often. But if they would be seen, they quite often would be seen as a one group, as, as Ukrainian IDPs or Ukrainian refugees. But if we look, uh, Ukrainian population is extremely diverse. And this this was also missing. So for me, it was very important to talk to different groups of people, both on uh, non-occupied and occupied territories uh, of different ethnic backgrounds as well, including, for example, Crimean Tatars or uh, other ethnicities, and try to present the picture and tell their stories uh, through my, my, my research. And uh, in which language is this book written? English. That's great. So, yeah, now maybe we could talk uh, about um, yeah, the displacement uh, crisis that is, uh, has been evolving in the past seven months. Have you researched this too, or, or was it maybe too personally difficult for you? Yes, I've researched it. I was involved as a volunteer from the very early moments of first Ukrainians arriving to the city I'm I'm staying currently in, in, in Germany. And also I, I had a feeling that the book I wrote 
uh, is uh, and I was writing about particular part of the country or region, and now the whole country is is living the same story. But I also felt that I know something because I studied this phenomena, and I could share it with uh, local administration, and I could help them to understand better. Uh, what is was happening with uh, Ukrainian refugees coming to different countries. And first of all, uh, for me, it was quite visible this civil society support uh, unfolding as it was in Ukraine. And we probably could now talk of, of, of a certain new pattern when uh, in previous times, if we would have a crisis, then first of all, uh, international community organ and humanitarian organizations would step in and, and states, uh, different states would step in and help. But now uh, what we see, and this is not only Ukrainian case, that actually first who is helping would be civil society and uh, voluntary, different types of voluntary networks or, or self-aid organizations and groups. And only gradually after a certain period of time, states or local administration would step in and they would cooperate together with international organizations. This is important to keep in mind that actually civil society is, uh, is ready and really helpful, but it cannot last for for a very long time because people have, they, they cannot volunteer for years. Uh, they have their jobs, they have limited resources, which they would be ready to share. But of course, uh, we need to move from one stage to the other when exactly the local administration of state would take more responsibilities and would use more resources uh, gradually. The war for sure makes a great impact on everybody who is living through this. So uh, personally for me, I, I'm, you know, Russian, I, so I was completely overwhelmed with, um, with all what I saw in the media, with the conflict, with a sense of guilt. So could you share maybe how, um, how did you feel and how did you manage to distance yourself to be able to analyze the information? Of course, this was, and it is still shocking. I, I, I had from the very first day the feeling of absolute surreal night dream. And you always think that you will wake up tomorrow and, and it, will, it will be over or your dream will be over. But at the same time, as a scholar, you understand that maybe some type of your training might be helpful for, for people who are suffering. So you have to pull yourself together and try to do what you can do because everyone can contribute in different ways. Uh, for me, exactly, I couldn't sleep, I couldn't eat, I couldn't think. Uh, this was a very difficult time, but at the same time, uh, I, I, I realized that I have to pull myself together. And first, what helped me was that I was teaching a course uh, back to my Ukrainian students. Uh, and I, I knew that they are also scared that there is a critical situation and sometimes they probably don't have any anyone to talk to or to share something. Uh, so I, I felt responsible for them. 
another important moment which helped me and my family, my, for example, my son, uh, to overcome this, because you still have a feeling of guilt that you are doing, doing not enough. It was volunteering. So uh, as I said, as soon as uh, the first Ukrainians arrived in our city, we were trying to, to help. And as I said, because I researched, I knew what were, were the major difficulties at the, during these first days of the arrival. So I could help them at least at this point to find their ways in the city, to translate. These are the basic elements which later on will build up their feeling of belonging to a new community. And uh, this was what was I and my son and my family were doing for, for Ukrainian refugees. And then gradually I was able to study. And again, uh, the first incentive was that I saw that local administration is approaching them with the knowledge they had, for example, with Syrian refugees. And if you look demographically, these are very different refugee flows because uh, in the Syrian case, these were mostly young men which had one type of needs, urgent needs arriving. And these were uh, young women with kids and elderly, and they had very different needs or different ones. So, uh, for example, I immediately realized that they will need schools, and schools are a very big problem in, in the part of uh, Germany I'm, I'm living. And without sending kids to schools, those young mothers would not be able to do anything else. And I was constantly, uh, like, repeated that, no, 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 we talked to them, and they believe they will be leaving soon. And I tried to, again, using my, my experience to explain that, this would not be happening. Why? Because the infrastructure they are coming from is shelled. So there are no schools, no hospitals, and even there is a, if there is a ceasefire, uh, they cannot go there with elderly and kids. Thank you so much, Victoria. It has been really interesting and um, yeah, important conversation to have. And um, I wish you and all, all Ukraine a lot of strength. Victoria Sereda is a fellow of the Forum of Transregional Studies in Berlin, senior researcher at the Institute of Ethnology of the National Academy of Sciences of Ukraine and professor at the Ukrainian Catholic University.